0: Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland.
1: And I'm Lisa Van Boxel from Santa Fe, New Mexico.
0: Today we're doing Plato's Symposium, a platonic dialogue uh, that is sometime around uh, 400 BC. We're not exactly sure when because they're doing some fun Pulp Fiction-esque time jumps in this one. Um, but Lise is going to take us through a little summary of the dialogue and start us off with our opening question.
1: Okay, so I'm not going to um, focus too much on the structural beginning, but but just just so our audience knows if they haven't read it, um, you, we begin with the guy called Apollodorus who starts talking about this party in the past with somebody unnamed. So it's, there's multiple narrators. Um, but basically the interest point is a party which is called a symposium, which is basically typically a drinking party. A Bunch of guys get together and, uh, and, and drink. Here um, they're celebrating uh, the victory of a young poet named Agathon who's just done very well in a, um, in, a, in a competition, poetry competition. And he was celebrated the previous day. This is sort of the, the weekend, the cleanup party. Um, and uh, one of the guys that's there says, you know, we, I drank so much the other night that I don't think I could do it again tonight. So they decide, uh, partly on those grounds, not to drink. They send away the sort of flute, flute girls, the entertainment, and they decide they're going to have a conversation about Eros. That's proposed by one of the young men named named uh, Phaedrus, and uh, actually by his lover, um who says Phaedrus would like to have Eros praised, and they take turns going around the room talking about it, and you get a summary of those events. Each speech becomes increasingly sophisticated and sort of synthesizes parts of the previous one and is in part a response to the previous one. Um, I think I, so they begin with Phaedrus, who makes this, who is the beloved in a, in a in his love affair, and not shockingly, uh, therefore he makes the claim that while it's all very nice for the lover to be possessed uh, by the god Eros, really it's the beloved who's the who's the bomb. Because uh, if the beloved likes the lover, uh, despite the fact that he's not possessed, that means he's sort of a special person. <laughs> we, yeah, um, we move from there through a, a bunch of speeches, which we can we can spend a little more time on. Um, but the highlights, the later highlights, we might spend the most time on that, and they seem to be um, uh, with some structural changes. We'll talk about Aristophanes, who gives what people often regard as the most beautiful speech about love and the one that resonates most with them. Now, that's tricky because although I think that is the first impression and it's supposed to be, it ends up being arguably a very dark picture of love, so we might want to spend some time there. Um, Socrates then responds to that one, saying that he's an expert in erotics and that he learned um, some of what he knows from a woman called Diatima, who makes an argument that's called the ladder of love, whereby she argues that um, all human beings in their actions Um, are erotic to greater lesser degrees and they pursue things that respond to their eros with greater lesser clarity and she begins with you you have a love affair with one person then you decide that maybe maybe you want multiple people and then you move through family and then this is the part that might be our tie-in in in particular Um, you decide you come to realize none of these things are quite sufficient you move to politics and law, and therefore also the military, and then ultimately from that up to philosophy. Um, And and through Tima's Tima's speech, Socrates has a sort of critique also of Aristophanes. Now Aristophanes is then about to respond, but he's interrupted by the arrival of Alcibiades, who of course is this beautiful, very famous, uh, very adept general. And he's totally plastered. (laughs) But um, just like Socrates apparently can drink and drink and basically doesn't seem to change. Alcibiades is totally plastered, but completely coherent. So there's a parallel there. Um, And he, I think, becomes um, Aristophanes response or um, I'd like to entertain the possibility that he might be Plato's response to Socrates, who himself is, of course, also a poet or has that capacity. And, um, and then Alcibiades gives this beautiful speech that's supposed to praise Eros, but actually praises Socrates. So at the end of the dialogue, um, again, it's been a sort of ascending order of excellence in the speeches. You don't actually get Socrates, you get Alcibiades. But there's arguably a lot of reasons to think Plato might be suggesting we need to put the philosopher, the archetypal philosopher as presented here with this general. Um, because of the pairings, and of course they're also presented as lo- as as lovers, although Alcibiades uh, says it doesn't look like it's sexual. Um, so that's sort of my my question: Why does Plato want to end there with Alcibiades? And I think if we were if this was a movie, um, Alcibiades would blow everybody else out of the water. That's the speech you're going to remember. That's the person who looks like he actually knows what love is and is a real lover, and is I think most lovable, um, and my wondering is whether, Socrates, whether Plato is suggesting, you know, you, I've presented Socrates a, as a little too heady, a little too intellectual, and we need to put him together with this other type, so the military type plus the, full, plus the philosopher as presented here makes really the full picture of the philosopher, so it's kind of a hypothesis, but I'm hoping you guys can help me out with it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so maybe um, I I like that question a lot because it it speaks directly to the structure of the whole um, dialogue, which is a kind of perplexing structure. Uh, It looks like it gets more and more secret as you get further and further into it until you get to the secret innermost heart, and there are Socrates and Alcibiades together looking back at you. Um, So maybe one of the things I could ask to follow up on that would be to say, what is it about uh, Socrates and his story about Diotima that's insufficient, right? In other words, it looks like the um, account that Socrates gives of what he learned from Diotima, the account of the ladder of love, um, is not enough. And we need more. We need Alcibiades to break into this. Um, And one thing that strikes me is uh, it looks possible that Socrates has made up Diotima. uh, That she might not be a real person. And if he made her up, doesn't that mean that he uh, could seem to us to be self-sufficient? Uh, the ladder of love suggests that, too, that uh, you start, at least as you described it, with a love of one person, and then you pursue other beautiful bodies, and you work your way out through beautiful laws and beautiful speeches. But eventually, we get this claim about seeing beauty itself, and it looks like you can just do that by yourself. You don't need anybody else. So what is it that uh, that would lead us to doubt that self-sufficiency. And that's a typical thought we have about the philosopher, that he's just sufficient by himself. Um, What's wrong with that part? Well, a part of it, just the fact that, you know, Socrates is such an
0: outlier. Like, Socrates can, you know, kind of pull this off as a paragon of a lover of wisdom. But even he needs his interlocutors, right? And so that's kind of the... The big difference is that Socrates is going to talk about this kind of ladder and this like uh, love of wisdom as the ideal, but it's not practical, right? That, that, that there's going to be politics, there's going to be war, and there's going to be your lovers physically, um, or your lovers in, in the family sense, and so you can't just be this kind of self-contained whole, that there has to be um, someone else in this equation.
1: But let's push that a little bit, because I thought Jeff was suggesting, and I think this is a, a pretty common reading of Socrates, that, yeah, okay, so you need the city, um, but uh, um, you're sort of an interloper in the city. And in fact, you don't need interlocutors. I mean, that's a fairly common view of the philosopher, that that um, Socrates might be being sort of generous when he's talking with these people, but he can do this stuff you know, in his room by himself. He doesn't, he, why is that? Because you can do dialectics in yourself, right? You can, you can play question and answer with yourself. So if he does need other people and it's not just the basic, um, you know, prudential need of, of, I need a city and I have to get groceries and that sort of stuff. Is there something that's missing for the human soul in the Diotima account and maybe even for philosophy, but, but Maybe not because he needs to speak with people, but maybe because of the first question that is, uh, maybe the ladder of love presents the human being as too much of a mind without a body, without passions. um, And that just is not human. I mean, not just, um, uh, and not even desirable for the philosophic activity itself, right? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. Uh, I'm going to follow up on that, not in connection to the Ladder of Love, which I find pretty abstract even though I think we should talk about it, but uh, in connection with some of the dramatic details at the beginning of the dialogue, there's uh, um, this very weird thing that happens. So Socrates um, has been invited to dinner at Agathon's house. Uh, He didn't go to the party that was the night before, the party where everybody got so plastered that they were drunk. He says he was afraid of crowds there. I don't know if I believe that because he seems to go to crowds in other uh, circumstances. But he's on the way and he runs into this guy, right? Uh, His name is um, Aristodemus. And he just drags Aristodemus along to the party, Um, Aristodemus is not invited, and he's kind of a, a poor nobody, although Agathon knows his name. And Socrates, for some reason, it turns out that Socrates hangs back and lets Aristodemus go first. And so this is very embarrassing and kind of funny uh, episode where Aristodemus shows up at this party that he's not been invited to without the guy who was actually invited, who invited him, right? And Aristodemus is standing there trying to make the best of a, a bad situation, and Agathon, in a very gentlemanly way, says, oh, I was looking for you and I would have invited you if I had found you, but please, you know, join join the party. So these details are, are strange, um, and I think they're there in part because of something that Socrates says. Um, he refers to a line in Homer uh, that's something like, when two go together. Um, and the, the line refers to a military action, right, which is a, a raid in the Iliad that's carried out by Odysseus and Diomedes together at night. Very exciting part of the Iliad. And the thought seems to be that uh, two heads really are better than one. Right, that there are some things that two heroes can do together that one can't do alone. Now, it's a little funny because Aristodemus is not exactly a hero of Socrates' uh, level. But nonetheless, uh, this so called self sufficient philosopher does drag this other guy along with him to a party. And, tra- and even, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry,
1: even, even stranger because Socrates stops in the doorway and seems to be thinking by himself.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we're
1: back to Brian's question, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: What does he need this guy for? Right. So, um, yeah, I just think that there are other indications in the dialogue, not just the appearance of Alcibiades at the end, that Socrates uh, does have some need for other people and that it makes what he does better to have other people, even people who are not necessarily of uh, the same caliber as him uh, alongside.
1: Yes. So this is um, I, I sort of wonder again, structurally, whether Plato is doing something like this, that philosophy um, is an erotic activity. And by that, I don't mean sexual, I mean, that there's a yearning for um, to, to be your better self, right? A yearning for ongoing growth and to to uh, maintain yourself as much as you can in, in your highest self condition. Um, so that's what I mean by eros here. And that that's what these other people represent. So in other words, you get um, the the intellect split from the passion with Socrates and Alcibiades, and that one would actually need both of those things operating in order to do the philosophic activity. and maybe even um, for some sort of combat, both literal but also with respect to learning. Um, because Jeff, you you bring up the the reference to the military um, scene in Homer, but that happens again with Alcibiades. So Alcibiades comes in, says, you know, you know, he's beautiful. He says, I thought Socrates was after my body. And, and he convinced me that I, that I need, that I had stuff to learn from him. So I thought we could make this trade, you know, that he could teach me and I, I give him sex basically. And so I offered myself to him and he had, he wasn't, he wouldn't have anything of of it. Right. Um, and I was I was sort of mortified because I'm this beautiful person, and how could this ugly little guy not want me? <laughs> um, and then it turns out that Alcibiades ends up being sort of a lover of Socrates. So there's a mutual interest, um, or at least there's interest um, from Alcibiades towards Socrates. And I would argue the other the other way too. And in the course of relating um, his love for Socrates, he also says, you know, we were fighting once and. I was on a horse because of a different military class. Socrates was on foot. um, And Alcibiades ends up being in a very difficult circumstance. And Socrates goes out of his way to save Alcibiades. Um, And then when Alcibiades is going to be rewarded for that valor, Alcibiades wants to correct those people and say, no, actually, Socrates deserves the reward. And Socrates won't take it. So you get a repetition of the military image, which, again, makes me wonder, is Alcibiades the fight part of the philosopher, the erotic part, the, the sort of juicy part, we might say? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I, I like um, pointing out those two elements of Alcibiades' speech because they help me to, to figure out and distinguish something that's always troubled me. Uh, The first episode, the one where Socrates and Alcibiades are sleeping together and Alcibiades offers himself to Socrates and is rebuffed, uh, I always understood that as, uh, therefore, um, uh, as an episode that that got under Alcibiades' skin, right? That made him wonder, what is this uh, old, uh, chubby, not very attractive guy got? such that he cares about it more than he cares about having me in my body. But that kind of wonder, I think, is always uh, tinged a little bit with resentment. And it might not be the same thing as genuinely admiring or caring about the other person, but it looks like ultimately, there is really mutual regard between Socrates and Alcibiades. And so the, the courageous episode helps me a little bit there. It's not just that he has something that something is the sort of thing that uh, leads Socrates to be willing to, uh, you know, risk risk himself for Alcibiades.
1: Yes, and I think a, a fairly typical and not unreasonable reading of this episode is that, yes, Alcibiades does feel resentful, he's sort of ruined by this pi- part um, of his life, Socrates is no longer interested, and so he really is sort of tragic, and as I said, I don't think that's um, without grounds. On the other hand, I think it overlooks the playfulness. So one could see it as resentful, or one could also just see it as funny. I mean, that basically, that these two guys are friends, and the one guy comes in is, is teasing a lot, like, like look at my body, like I'm perfect, and this other ugly little guy doesn't want me, and how could, that's outrageous, and everybody's laughing, right? right? Um, if we go that route, we have a better explanation for some details. For instance, um, Alcibiades saying that um, after he offered himself to Socrates and Socrates turned him down, and Alcibiades realizes he's not quite sure, therefore, what Socrates is getting out of this relationship, he nevertheless relates that Socrates says, you know, we'll make all decisions together, right? That there's a kind of unity there. Um, so we might be able to add, in addition to the fight, uh that Alcibiades adds a kind of fruitful levity to Socrates' life, which looks remarkably un um looks sort of a little humorless in mm-hmm. the Diatima mm-hmm. account, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. The flute girls come back in with Alcibiades, don't they? They kick them out at the beginning, but they can't keep them out.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's very tricky, like, you know, Alcibiades, around 216b, you know, has this little commentary on Socrates, and he says, Socrates is the only man in the world who has made me feel shame. Ah, you don't think I had it in me, did you? Yes, he makes me feel ashamed. I know perfectly well that I can't prove he's wrong when he tells me what I should do, yet the moment I leave his side, I go back to my old ways. I cave into my desire to please the crowd. My whole life has become one constant effort to escape from him and keep away, but when I see him, I feel deeply ashamed because I'm doing nothing about my way of life, though I've already agreed with him that I should. Sometimes, believe me, I think I would be happier if he were dead, and yet I know that if he dies, I'll be even more miserable. I can't live with him and I can't live without him. What can I do about them? <clears throat> and it seems like when we're talking about the kind of interlocular piece, when we're talking about, you know, another way to say it is um, like in a chemical, in a chemistry way, like the agent and the reagent, right? Yeah. If you're, if you're alone as an elemental particle and you're not reacting with anything, you're, you're not going to change and you're, you know, because of entropy kind kind of dissolve a little bit, right? You're going to be a little bit more chaotic. But when you have these different types of reagents, you're gonna react in a certain way, and so when Alcibiades is around the crowd um, you know like w- what he was before he shows up, right he's hammered he's plastered he's his passions are kind of on fire and then when he gets around Socrates he goes, I know I shouldn't be doing this I know I should be trying to better myself I know I should be trying to understand you know um, what is wisdom and what is virtue and what is love, but I can't do it without him and it that seems to me to kind of encapsulate a little bit of the military existence in that like when you're with your unit and you're training with your unit and you're there with other people that have the same kind of standards and practices that um, you're supposed to have, then you're a squared away type, right? And then as soon as the Liberty Call happens, as most military and especially Marines are famous for, it's you're going to the bar and you're getting wasted and then you feel terrible about that the next day when you have to show up for PT. And so there's the, you know, Alcibiades is describing the kind of, you know, we want to as military folks be squared away and we want to show up for PT and we want to finish our uh, training and do it well. But then there's part of us that kind of dissolves away from that when we're taken out of that environment. Um, And so there's something human in that and it's just more punctuated maybe in the military sense and in the Alcibiades sense. So I guess the question is like, you know, is, is Alcibiades, you know, kind of like what Lise was saying initially, is Alcibiades really the ideal, that you can't have one without the other, and that the purely debaucherous uh, Alcibiades is not the ideal, and the purely philosophic Alcibiades, which is Socrates, is not the ideal. It's, you have to have some kind of balance.
1: This, this works nicely that, again, if we look at them as, um, two embodied, separate, um, aspects of what ought to be a single soul or two like like taking two parts of yourself and just making them different characters if we go back to aristophanes speech right um, then we get a sort of nice foil for what brian just developed that is in aristophanes speech the suggestion is which most people love um that really we want to kind of be one with our beloved and so Aristophanes says, you know, if, I, if we used to be one way back when we were these sort of donut people. We were around and um, and we were very proud and we made an assault on the gods. And so the gods split us into two halves and we missed our other half so much that we, we just didn't eat and we started to starve and die. <laughs> and what we want out of love in our current condition is to be really sort of sewn back together with our other half and then life would be great. And everybody thinks, oh, that's wonderful. That's what I really want. I want my other half and I want to just merge with them. And then you start to think, God, that would be awful because uh, maybe for a bunch of reasons, but one of them would be, it does look like love involves otherness, Um, right? Um, We want to have some pushback, which doesn't have to be um, something that's negative or that undermines us, but rather a kind of tension that might be fruitful so, if we can bring that back to what Brian said in the military context, yeah, it might be that in um the complete philosopher if if we put this Socrates together with the Alcibiades or in the in the military type which which um it looks like might be involved in the complete philosopher, then you might see a fruitful tension between those aspects of the soul they would have to be managed presumably by the Socratic part we're calling the Socratic part um. But that might be very much the picture that he's presenting here you know that the Alcibiades is the is the wilder aspect the spirited aspect and then you sort of pull yourself together um, but that there's never a perf- perfect union between these two. It's,
2: it's funny it's almost like we're explaining why this dialogue is the uh, perfect justification for the title of our podcast series right because the yes. the unity of combat and classics is the unity of Alcibiades and Socrates. And that's the successful unity as opposed to the horrific failed unity that is at the end of um, Aristophanes' speech. Right? Uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, that underlines this for me is that at the end of Aristophanes' speech, we've got the two lovers together in bed, and Hephaestus is offering to weld them together, as as Lise was suggesting. And it looks like there are, there are two possible outcomes. Either the souls are not combined, and then you get this awful human centipede-like solution, right, where you have two different minds in a single body, um, or the souls are combined. That looks like the restoration of the original condition, according to Aristophanes. But doesn't that mean the separate souls die? They just cease being what they are? And the lovers, according to Aristophanes, can't say what they want. They, they don't talk much lying there, right? They just hug or something like that. But in the case of Socrates and uh, Alcibiades, they talk, right? And I think that difference, right, that combat in classics or that, um, you know, uh, Alcibiades and Socrates are perpetually talking to one another, that's part of the viability of the solution as against the failed uh, Aristophanic vision. Well, there's something throughout about attraction and repulsion, right?
0: In each of the dialogues, there's this, you know, idea of lover and beloved, or there's this idea of, you know, what I just read from Alcibiades, where it's like when I get too far away from Socrates, I'm repulsed at what I am. And so I swing back to him. But then when I get too close, I'm too ashamed of what I did when I was away from him. And so it does seem that there needs to be some kind of balance between the two. Because the the complete fusion um, just doesn't seem viable, right? But the complete repulsion also doesn't seem viable as well, right? And so, I guess then, like, my question is, you know, what are the distinct, you know, because anytime I propose a point, I'm not convinced of yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> is you know what what are the I guess what are the failings of that in each of the dialogues? What are the parts where um, or what would shoot down that idea of a, a homeostasis or an equilibrium between uh you know the kind of philosophic and um ideal of thumos i'll get some greek in there just my my four words of greek the spiritedness of alcibiades
2: yeah that's interesting it looks like um and least suggested this at the beginning like um Each of the previous speeches in Praise of Eros uh, gets something wrong so that a subsequent speech can add to it or improve on it. Uh, And sometimes it looks like what it gets wrong is the non-mutuality of the love, right? So it's not reciprocated. Um, There's a a distinct lover and a beloved, and then it becomes a real question as to whether it's uh, in the interest even of the beloved to be loved in the way that the lover wants to do it. Um, Sometimes it looks like uh, the error is that Eros becomes too cosmic, like in Ereximicus's speech, it does too much. Uh, Sometimes it looks like the error is that Eros is too tragic, like it is in Aristophanes' speech, or that it's too comic, like it is in Agathon's speech, right? It doesn't really tell the truth um, uh, about what Eros is. So it looks like uh, Socrates is really trying to describe, as best he can, the best case of um, mutual regard between human beings, the peak of the possibility of mutual regard. And it looks like it's indicated by himself and, and Alcibiades. Um, I guess we want to say Plato here, because Socrates' own speech is supplemented by what Alcibiades says. Um, but just on this question of, of homeostasis that you raised, Brian, Um, It's not clear to me, you know, Aristophanes says when you put people together in the right way, like human beings were originally, the donut people that Lise uh, mentions, the thing that happens is they start to think big. And what do they want? They want to take down the gods. That's what people who are um, put together uh, in the best possible way do with their time, right? They plot against the gods, Do we think that, uh, you know, that uh, Alcibiades and Socrates, these two peaks of the active and the contemplative life, if we can put it that way, when you put them together, do they plot against the gods? Or are they somehow, you know, uh, just happy to talk with one another, and they stay in a kind of equilibrium?
0: Well, I think that brings in the historical dynamic, right? Because when you look at what happens with Socrates and what happens with Alcibiades. They don't necessarily... Well, Socrates gets accused of plotting against the gods. Um, he threatens the power structure of Athens. Um, and then Alcibiades ends up fleeing to Sparta. So there is something there where you rebel against whatever the power structure is that you're within.
1: But it's it's this worldly. Um, so let me, let me go back... I like the language you use brian and i guess i'll put it this way um alcibiades and socrates together have to have an unstable equilibrium so so and it looks like the instability is fruitful so if i were to just um add on to what jeff was saying about that maybe flesh out um he noted that the the other relationships look insufficient Partly because of the trade that's involved. Maybe we should just speak a little bit about that. In its crudest form, it, it is what I suggested Alcibiades thought Socrates wanted. It's like, oh, you're smart and I've got a great body. So I want to learn from you and I'll give you sex. But when you start seeing what the what the people that are offering sex are saying, um, you know, they don't find the old guys that are teaching them to be sexually attractive. So I don't think that sounds like a great sexual interaction. It's like you're sort of holding your nose while you're doing this deed because you, you really want the learning. Um, and then the suggestion is also when the uh, lover stops finding the beloved attractive, there's actually going to be hostility right there. There's a right. they harm each other. Um <clears throat> So it's it's interesting because that looks like a problem of too much separation actually between the two parts they're not they're not actually interested in the same thing mm-hmm. and what one might even wonder whether the older the teacher that thinks that he he can teach somebody about love and is and wants to do that because he wants sex whether such a person actually knows anything about love <laughs> um, um and then when you get uh Aristophanes addressing that, it goes to the other extreme, which is, as Jeff was saying, the sewing together, which also looks horrific. So what we seem to get with Alcibiades and Socrates is yes, they're separate people. They have a sort of unstable but fruitful equilibrium, but maybe the underlying additional thing we have to note is um, they are also one person in a way. Right, So, so he, he doesn't take either option of two distinct people that aren't really looking for the same thing or the donut people, but rather an implicit critique of the whole notion that you could simply separate these two parts, that actually they're, they're probably interwoven together um, um, in some way. That
2: yeah. yeah, and if I'm following you, Lisa, it sounds like uh, what makes them one person is a common longing. Right. In other words, they have, uh, unlike the longings that can't be shared between the lover and the beloved in the earlier models, they have a common eros for some third thing, and so that, to me, along with Brian's comments about the historical context, just doubles down on this question. Right? Is the thing that they long for together to mount an assault on Olympus? Right? Whatever that might mean in this world. Right. And, you know, Brian mentioned, of course, the accusation against Socrates that he's impious, right? He doesn't believe in the gods of the city. Uh, In addition to whatever the fallout from the Sicilian expedition was for Alcibiades, he was also accused of mutilating uh, religious statues in Athens, right? Maybe on the very night that this party took place, right? So it looks like both names come to acquire a kind of taint of impiety, and I wonder whether the truth behind that taint isn't the common erotic longing.
1: Yes, okay, so let's extend that. So you're saying that's a version of assault on the gods in in a fairly obvious way now. Let's throw in uh, Brian's observation as, w- as well that both Socrates and Alcibiades um, challenge the existing authoritative paradigm. Um, so that might be part of it, right? Folded into... in um, what this this worldly assault on the gods look like it it is a kind of independence right it's the notion that i will not uh simply accept authoritative paradigms and live in them but rather there is an effort to evaluate them and push beyond them where you think that they are um, not fully valid or whether they're invalid
2: um yeah i think that makes that makes sense to me uh so what is their common longing for? Is it for the activity of talking to one another and somehow negotiating those aspects in which they are different? Or is it for something else?
1: Let's take little steps. I should say where we are now, of course, the the military tie-in makes this a very da- sort of dangerous conversation we're having <laughs> now. But it, it does remind me of Lincoln. It's yeah. similar eros where he where he notes that these types, these Military types, but also leadership types that are leaders, and these things obviously overlap they do have a tyr- tyrannical inclination. They want, to, they want to do big projects, and one has to find a productive outlet for that. So um, so if we now take that back into the context of this dialogue, um, they want independence. Do they want to rule? I mean, I'm thinking again of Brian's emphasis at the beginning on the social aspect. Is it that they want to rule or other people? Or is it really, I want to rule myself? Or is it a third thing? I want to rule um, and I would like to um, rule in such a way that other people's condition are is also improved. But uh, there is an inclination to break down existing structures and extend them. And of course, I have Alcibiades in particular in mind there who... Um, did want to rule, but he seemed always to understand his own prowess in terms of also making the Athenians as good as they could be.
2: Yeah, th- this is a tricky thing. Uh, the counter example is, I guess, what Aristophanes says, right? So he suggests that the uh, donut people, the circular humans, before they were cut in half, um, plotted to overthrow the gods not because the gods had something they needed, but just because they were so uh, complete on their own that uh, the existence of the gods seemed superfluous to them. Right. In other words, maybe they, maybe they just felt like the conditions of their own flourishing were in their power. And so that there were gods in addition uh, was, was unnecessary and wasn't to be taken seriously. Right? So that might be one way of thinking about um, what could be happening with Socrates and Alcibiades. It's not that they want um, to be responsible for more human beings or to take away the responsibility that others have for human beings, but they do see that whatever uh, conditions brought them into existence, it would be good if those continued. Right, And so there's a kind of rule as an afterthought that comes with the desire to... Preserve and, if possible, reproduce the conditions of your own flourishing, right? It would mean that they're not tyrannical directly, but maybe uh, as an afterthought or or uh, uh, secondarily.
1: Yeah, this is yeah. So let me work a little bit with this image. Yeah. So Aristophanes' account, which it looks like Socrates, um, as is the sort of plot of the of the play, both rejects in part and incorporates aspects of. Yeah, you so say Aristophanes has the, the donut people assault the gods. It's So, Jeff, you suggest sort of because it, they find them objectionable because they're unnecessary. Right. <laughs> um, and it's, it's also, it's a little bit like, well, you know, the, the mountain's there. We've got nothing else to do because we're complete <laughs> now. So I guess we'll climb it. Um, Socrates, at the very end of the dialogue, we're told, well, I guess t- two details. Um, he's the only one that seems able to just... Finish talking the whole night and then go about his day. Although I'll add to that, I think Alcibiades has left the building by this point. So Alcibiades actually is the other one who stays totally drunk. But when the party's interrupted by other revelers, he he I think he leaves with them. Um, so so both of them again are paralleled in their ability to just keep on going with their condition. Um, but Socrates is apparently having a conversation with. Uh, the two other major poets, Aristophanes and Agathon, about the need uh, for the best poet to combine tragedy and comedy. So I'd like to look at that a bit in the context of what Jeff did, that is, uh, the donut people look like at the end of the play, they're just in a comic state, that is, every life is good. I don't mean comedy as in funny, but just um, uh, life is sort of stable which looks like it's sort of unsatisfying hence they make an assault on the god and then they get this very terrible thing happening so it's again either one or the other right you're either comic or you're tragic and it looks like Socrates is suggesting the coexistence of these two things Um, could we tie that into uh, this question of uh, their shared eros Mm -hmm.
2: so is it something like uh, Alcibiades is always going to want to rule the world but Socrates is always going to try to get him to think about why, and Socrates uh, is always going to try to think about things, but unless he has the desire of somebody to rule the world to think about, the things that he's thinking about aren't the best things to think about. It sounds that kind seems... of weird, but is that right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds right to me, and maybe and maybe the rule of the world could be... Um, maybe I would add on to it this. with Without Alcibiades, maybe Socrates doesn't think at all I mean I mean, you say he doesn't think about the right things but maybe there's no impulse to think at all what would it be
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you mean, I mean well go ahead yeah
1: I was going to say maybe this is helps to explain why when Socrates gives his speech um, about Eros although he's told us he's an expert in it he gives somebody else's speech yeah maybe because having been split from what we're calling the Alcibiades aspect he um, really can't give an account of eros Mm -hmm. because he doesn't it's not there
2: yeah yeah he also retracts his claim about being an expert at erotics because he claims that the speeches of others have made him think he doesn't know right now there's obviously some playfulness in that but maybe those two uh, details indicate how thinking for socrates is uh, with respect to something that somebody else has thought or said right that it's not uh, simply self-motivated
1: it seems like if we explore this hypothesis, we're going to have to make some sense of Alcibiades' claim that um, Socrates looks, he's an ugly little guy, but if you could open him up um, like a little statue, you would see he's golden inside, that he's this incredible, be- beautifully beautiful being, um, which goes back to the suggestion that uh, even as Alcibiades presents it here, Socrates looks self-sufficient. So we would have to deal with that detail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it looks like part of what Alcibiades admires about Socrates is uh, some degree of independence from what's ordinarily done that looks maybe superhuman, right? But maybe that's uh, that's only a partial account.
0: Well, I'm trying, yeah.
2: to, I'm trying to like... <clears throat>
0: Everything with everything you're talking about, especially with Alcibiades, and you know the intro to the to his speech talking about how he's trying to have sex with uh, Socrates, and Socrates keeps denying him. I'm I'm coming back to the intertwining of those two, which is obviously best spoken philosophically by Frank Underwood in House of Cards, where. Um, and I'm, I'll, I'll sound like foghorn Leghorn if I try to do his South Carolina access but he, accent he just says you know everything is about sex except for sex sex is about power and so you know he's this is the one kind of sexual object for for Alcibiades the Socrates that he can't overcome that he can't overpower and so there's something in that with the beloved and the loved the attraction repulsion and that balance there and I'm just trying to figure out you know, is how much of Alcibiades' drive is based on sex, and how much is is based on power, and how does that factor in what we're talking about with with the tyrannical instinct?
1: I, I would like to think, um, and that's which is not doesn't mean it's true, that it's the power dynamic that's that's the problem with the previous speeches, and that in the full account of love, um, it's not about Dominating in that way, that that Alcibiades takes a misstep, but he realizes it's a misstep. But then the question is, what's the resulting condition? And I guess I'm going to go at this a little obliquely. It looks to me, if this is true, that in at least in some way, Alcibiades and Socrates are meant to be a single being with aspects to it that are represented by each. That self-love depends on having otherness in you. And if we go that route, I can make some sense of Alcibiades looking at Socrates and seeing him as this complete being and then opening him up and seeing that he's beautiful inside, that that might be of that aspect of the soul looking at another aspect of the soul, and genuinely appreciating it for its beauty as an independent thing, while also knowing that you have a relationship. That looks um not so frank underwoodish and it also looks like a better and truer account of actual love right
2: Mm -hmm. whereas if uh socrates had succumbed to alcibiades advances alcibiades could have quite reasonably said to himself oh i have this in me too this is really mine and i can get it whenever i want it namely the wisdom of somebody else right because my bodily bloom is enough to acquire that whenever I need it. So it is a kind of rebuke against some illusion of self-sufficiency that he might have had.
1: Right, and it corrects the, the sort of crude transactional aspect of the previous accounts. That is, not to say that, uh, although Alcibiades claims that these two don't have sex, but um, both in, with a relationship with someone external to you, but but in some way, also with you, yourself, with yourself, if I could say that without sound, without going too far down that road. Um, it looks like one has to sort of a self-respect, right? But also respect for the other, if it's another human being, a recognition that you're just sort of beholding the beauty of what the other is. Um, and that the sexual interaction or the interaction is... is um, In some way, a celebration of that while also knowing that it's always going to be other. And that's necessary for the beholding of it. Um, Now, if we tie that back into the military angle and Brian's account, um, could we say then that um, the sort of spirited side, the fight side, the passionate side of, of a warrior type human being and then the sort of cool-headed uh, calculating side, if that's more Socratic, that a similar dynamic exists there, that it would be, just to recap, wrong to regard them as completely separate, although that might be pedagogically useful, um, that but that they must also somehow be other from each other and they actually have different times when they play important roles so that one wouldn't simply want one to overcome the other. Does that seem... Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes sense to me in that, like, if you just let your passions rule and you ignore your philosophic side, whether that's, you know, in combat or just in generally, like, if you, um, you know, if you look at battle as, like, it's just two people with rocks and whoever crushes the other one more efficiently wins, um, that's not philosophically the case and you're gonna because i think that we all have a philosophical side you're going to pay the consequences of that as far as you know what jonathan shea talks about as far as moral injury Mm -hmm. you can't you can't approach battle like that by the same token you know you can't approach battle in a purely philosophical way and when bullets start flying you go are these bullets really flying like <laughs> is this person really my enemy like it's it's you, you can't have it that way either and so it definitely makes sense to me that you have to have a balance between the two and i think that there's a lot of things that the military does from a structural standpoint from a training standpoint to address those two things in calibrating the philosophic with the passionate to to have them balance out um, but it's definitely an interesting question on how well you do with that, both individually and as a unit. Um, you know, you, you, ha- there's got to be a balance there, otherwise, both short and long term, you're going to suffer significant consequences, whether it be mission accomplishment or whether it be your
2: ability to deal with what you have done. Yeah, that, that seems right to me, and it seems, uh, I mean, it's been my experience that whenever uh, the military mind and, let's say, the academic mind come together, there is a struggle for dominance between the two of them, and one of those. Well, things... we we knife hand really well, Jeff. <laughs> I don't right. know what the academic knife hand version is. It, it, it's a mental knife hand. <laughs> it's a mental knife hand. <laughs> but if we follow what you and Lisa are saying, you know, you in terms of preserving the balance, and Lisa in terms of uh, admiring, seeing the other as other. It looks like uh, we gotta. Both sides have to keep in mind that we don't want to win that battle necessarily to dominate the other, because we don't want to eradicate the other viewpoint or reduce it to our own. Instead, it's very good that both of them remain alive and there be a kind of friendship between them. Or maybe
0: there is some instinct that we do want to dominate, but fortunately we can't, <laughs> which is which is good, right? It's it's you know if if the will to power. Is a part of us and is instinctual. Um, it's better off that that is not possible to have a, a completeness in that. Um, that there is some other interlocutor that's going to balance that. Um, but maybe you can't do it yourself. You know, maybe if you, maybe if you let it fully grow within you, um, either that will to power or the will to, you know, as Socrates it is in the beginning of the dialogue, just stops stands there and is having like an internal conversation with his daimon like that's not the full existence of man either but anyway i think i think we should wrap up here um we went a little bit long today but it was i, I enjoyed it um any uh any final questions that you that you all have for our listeners to consider if they uh, approach this uh, approach this dialogue
2: what is Socrates doing when he's sitting out there on the porch before the dinner party? Is he really thinking?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he apparently does this on the battlefield too, right? So this is a, this recurring thing with him.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you then, Lise. Thank you, Jeff. For, thank uh, you, For another episode of the Combat Classics Brian. podcast. Um, we've got a couple more exciting, uh, works coming up. Um, uh, stay tuned to our Facebook page and our uh, uh, website for uh, for more info. We'll have a new episode soon. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye.